The pride of Boston can be many things. This is the birthplace of freedom, the cradle of liberty. In modern times, it's the city of champions. While the Irish Catholic history looms large, the real cathedrals that draw the most devoted of Bostonians are the hallowed grounds of Boston sports complexes. Fenway Park and the Boston Garden, home to the beloved Red Sox and Celtics, are a main source of Boston pride. Yet in their early years, they diverged in paths. One franchise embraced diversity, the other resisted. This is the tale of two Bostons. A Boston that all at once was a driver of social progress and a cautionary tale of what happens when you keep your demons buried. A Boston that was a beacon of equality, as well as a looming shadow of repressed tension. Welcome to DeLorean Nights, a podcast that travels back in time on a road trip across America. Join us as we explore unique destinations and navigate the amazing stories, people, and events that came to define them. While a heroic, trailblazing athlete put a franchise on his back and built the legendary Celtic dynasty, he faced a battle off the court that many of his fellow citizens refused to acknowledge even existed. In this battle, the city's children would be unwitting soldiers on the front lines. Boston was the city that created the American flag. It would also be the city that wielded the American flag as a weapon, horrifying the rest of the country as it tried to strike itself in the heart. This is Pride and Reckoning in Boston, and we'll begin in the holiest of Boston landmarks, Fenway Park. Sports is a big part of life in Boston, and here too the city can lay claim to some of the greatest moments in athletic history, as well as some of the greatest athletes who ever played. A shrine on Yawkey Way, Fenway Park. It has been home to Boston Red Sox immortals Babe Ruth, Ted Williams, Carl Yastrzemski, and a new kid with a pretty fair pitching arm, Roger Clemens. On a crisp and sunny April afternoon, three young men with major league dreams earned a tryout for the Boston Red Sox. They arrived at the storied Cathedral of Boston, Fenway Park, and took a few swings. One of the top prospects stood out from the other two. He had the swagger of an elite athlete. He had speed. Most importantly, he had a smooth but powerful swing. Reporters and representatives of the Red Sox looked on as he casually sailed balls over the fabled Green Monster, a moniker given to the colossal wall in left field. The team's top scout exclaimed, What a player! Surely this young man had aced his tryout and would soon don the red and white uniform as the newest asset to Boston's storied franchise. Unfortunately, the top scout noted, he had one glaring and obvious fault. He may have been a Hall of Fame talent, but he was the wrong color. The Red Sox owner reportedly screamed to get them off the field, using much harsher terminology. That was the end of the tryout. This was 1945, 
and the prospect's name, Jackie Robinson. The entire tryout was a charade, and no matter how hard he hit, how fast he ran, or how hard he threw, Robinson would never become a member of the Boston Red Sox. Team owner Tom Yawkey believed integrating his team would be horrible for business, as black fans would deter white fans from coming to Fenway. However, a city council member played politics, demanding Negro League players receive a tryout, or else the Sox couldn't play games on Sundays. As Boston was heavily Catholic, special permits were required to hold events on this most sacred of days. Yawkey relented, and they got their tryout. Unsurprisingly, nothing came of it. Much has been made of the storied curse of the Bambino. The Red Sox were doomed for almost a century of misery for peddling the greatest ball player of all time to the dreaded Yankees for a measly couple of hundred thousand dollars. But was Boston's beloved team haunted by a ghost of a rambunctious and portly slugger? Or were they really just cursed by the bigotry of their own ownership? They could have had Jackie Robinson. Instead, it would be 14 long years before the Sox would even sign a black player, earning the shameful title as the last team to integrate. Ownership and management would claim they weren't racially motivated. The talent coming out of the Negro Leagues simply wasn't up to the caliber of player deserving of a spot on their roster. But rosters for every team from 1947 all the way to 1959 would offer evidence to the contrary. The Red Sox franchise would be destined for misery for the rest of the century. Robinson's brief time with the Red Sox is a uniquely Boston story. Boston's history with race is often littered with contradiction, somehow at the forefront of social progress, yet lagging at the same time. Boston was considered the birthplace of abolitionism. Quote, it was from Boston that abolitionists had issued their calls for a holy war against slavery. It was there that many blacks fled on the Underground Railway, relying on Boston to forward them to Canada. End quote. Boston represented liberty, refuge, and a beacon of light in a dangerous country. From the post-Civil War period to the height of Jim Crow, many fled to Boston, where they were promised equality. But what unfolded was a different reality. While Boston clearly wasn't Montgomery or Birmingham, civil rights warrior and Boston resident Malcolm X warned, quote, The northern fox is more vicious than the southern wolf because he poses as your friend. End quote. For tonight's story on Boston, we're not going to focus on the Red Sox, but another storied franchise in the city. Among the many things Bostonians pride themselves on is their love of sports. Today, Boston touts itself as a city of champions. Duckboat parades and banner celebrations are expected and still celebrated with an exuberant freshness. Since 2000, the rest of the country is tired of watching Boston teams celebrate. Football, baseball, hockey, basketball. They've won in every sport. But this wasn't always the case. After the Sox peddled the babe and passed on Robinson, they languished in irrelevance and the city's trophy case laid bare. To quench Boston's thirst for victory, the National Basketball Association and Boston's own Celtics 
rose to prominence in the 1950s. Unlike the Red Sox, the Celtics embraced integration and shattered many barriers en route to basketball royalty. Boston's championship pedigree was forged on the back of the Celtics players who delivered to the city championship after championship. No one did more to sew together this championship fiber than William Russell. Few would bet that upon his arrival in 1956, the lanky center would go down as not only the greatest Celtic, but the greatest player to ever play. Some believe he was the greatest leader and winner the sports world had ever witnessed. He has more championship rings than he has fingers, and he painted his many masterpieces while dealing with a world divided over civil rights. During his career, he saw his own heroes, friends, as well as Boston's most prominent citizens shot down in cold blood. He faced the brunt of the attack from the Northern Fox. Despite pouring his entire soul into his team, his city would not fully embrace him until decades later. But this story will not focus on perseverance, but on what it takes to forgive and who deserves to be forgiven. While Russell fought the Northern Fox, community leaders fought it as well in the form of segregation in schools. Now how can segregation occur without overt racism and purposeful separation of people based on their physical traits? This is a complicated answer for sociologists and economists much more talented than I am to tackle. It's also heavily debated. Part of it is easily explained. Families and people with similar roots tend to flock together. They arrive in a new place together and live in close proximity. But forces of bigotry and racism have a heavy hand in forcing this along. Redlining, job discrimination, and other archaic tactics prominent in the history of our cities can force strict boundaries of separation. It's an intricate whirlwind of economic, sociological, and political forces that weave this complex pattern of boundaries throughout urban neighborhoods. Bunker Hill, where the idea of an independent and free nation took its first bloody steps toward reality, became a representation of how intricate these forces could be. For over a hundred years, immigrants, natives, religions, and political affiliations all jockeyed for position on the hill. Living on the right side of the hill and toward the summit came to represent social standing. Social standing had everything to do with wealth versus poverty, and this was inevitably tied to race. But in a post-Jim Crow America, especially in a shining beacon of liberalism like Boston, was segregation really being practiced? And in the city's schools? The reality was, people with better jobs had more money, and therefore had the ability to move to the nicest homes in the nicest neighborhoods. Their property taxes were higher, resulting in more municipal funding and better schools. The better schools attracted the better teachers. The well-educated would go on to become community leaders, councilmen, board members, and superintendents, all people that decide which places and services take precedence when a budget is created. The cycle is repeated generation after generation. So what was the issue with Boston's public schools by the 1960s? Civil rights leader and activist Ruth Batson explained in simplistic and blunt terms. Quote, when we would go to white schools, 
would see these lovely classrooms with a small number of children in each class. The teachers were permanent. We'd see wonderful materials. Then we'd go tour our schools. We would see overcrowded classrooms, children sitting out in the corridors, and so forth. And so, then we decided that where there were a large number of white students, that's where the care went. That's where the books went. That's where the money went. End quote. I and didn't I, hear what you said, Mrs. Johnson. I said that any school that is predominantly Negro in Boston is an inadequate school. But Mrs. Johnson, the superintendent of schools, has stated as his policy that a racially imbalanced school is not educationally harmful. Well, <laughs> Mrs. Hicks, may, uh, Madam Chairman, may I say this? Superintendent Orenberger and yourself and other committee members do not have children in a racially imbalanced school, so you do not know what the effect is on our children. Ruth Batson and her fellow activists had an uphill battle to wage. While the contemporaries in the southern states were fighting tooth and nail to integrate their own society and battle overt racism from neighbors and government officials, the battle in the north had a different hurdle. They had to convince people of an environment many refused to admit even existed. De facto segregation was a made-up concept, according to many. If you don't like your school, move. If you don't like the neighborhood you live in, get a house in a better neighborhood. If you don't like your economic standing, work harder to improve your wealth. Climb the economic ladder. Get higher on Bunker Hill. Get to the nice side of Bunker Hill. This was the American dream. This was Boston, where that dream was first conceived. But who was saying this? More often than not, it was those who had grown up on the wealthy side of the hill, those who had gone to the good schools, those who had enjoyed the status quo. While the Red Sox destroyed their future by refusing to embrace change and utilize the talent from underappreciated groups, the Boston Celtics had risen to prominence by doing exactly the opposite. In post-war America, attendance at baseball games was swelling. Boston's hockey franchise, the Bruins, was beloved as well, drawing major crowds to the Boston Garden. The manager of the Boston Garden, Massachusetts native and former hockey coach Walter Brown, sought ways to fill the arena when the Bruins were on the road. He came up with a lucrative idea to host college basketball doubleheaders. The success of college basketball made him think that professional basketball could succeed as well. Seeing the opportunity for a successful professional basketball franchise in Boston, Brown remortgaged his house to purchase the Boston Celtics. Brown then brought on a fiery, tough-as-nails, blue-collar man from Williamsburg, Brooklyn to coach the Celtics, Red Auerbach. Together, Auerbach and Brown would shatter racial barriers that had long been established in the sport of basketball. Was it because of human decency or a burning desire to win at all costs? Well, these things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Auerbach, a former high school coach and Navy man during the war, had a unique idea on how to build a winning professional franchise. His open-minded, progressive, and forward-thinking franchise was founded on good old-fashioned stereotyping. As he once explained to an owner while pitching himself for a job, basketball was a regional game. 
That is, when a good player comes through a high school, he'd often attend a local college. Then all the programs around him would then emulate that player's style and strengths. Local youth leagues, clinics, and fellow coaches develop their players in a similar mold. Over time, different regions focused on different aspects of the game. Quote, New York and New Jersey had the smart guards. The Midwest had the runners and power players, while the big, tough rebounders were coming from the West. End quote. Even more specifically, New York had all the ball handlers with two-handed set shots from distance. St. Louis had the one-handed set shooters. Detroit and Cleveland were rife with runners and speedsters. Red had noticed this during his time in the Navy as a chief petty officer in charge of recreation. His grand idea to build a winning team was to pick out players from each region. With each player contributing a particular expertise, they would have a leg up on the competition, which clustered their players from the same region. Brick by brick, player by player, region by region, Red turned the Celtics into a winning team. In doing so, he drafted the first black player in league history, Chuck Cooper. Some of Red's personnel moves demonstrated a touch of brilliance. Others were just lucky. For example, by sheer randomness, as in literally picking names out of a hat, the Celtics got a 6-1, sleight-of-build local college star from Holy Cross. Auerbach never wanted him, but Bob Cousy soon became a phenomenon and a fan favorite in Boston. Local Bostonians saw themselves in Cousy. The son of French immigrants and raised in Queens, New York, he was the blue-collar, good Catholic boy the city's Irish Catholic base could identify with. Cousy could put on dribbling and passing displays no one had ever seen before. Bob Cousy with the ball here, plays one of the greatest games in a brilliant career. Behind the back, no look, fast breaks. He had a flash and style all his own. He was the Houdini of the hardwood. Take of the clock, the Celtics dominate the play. The final score, a decisive 122 to 103. And the man on the hour is Bob Cousy. Who else? But despite the flair and brilliance of Cousy, the Celtics were merely good, not championship-level great. That simply wouldn't do for Red Arbach. They needed to get bigger. They needed to get tougher. In order to do so, Red would need to find a center. He gazed westward toward California, where all the rebounders were grown. Before we get to Mr. Russell's origins and his arrival in Boston, we wanted to share a little bit more on the atmosphere of professional basketball in the 1950s. As with most new sports leagues in American history, the early days were akin to the Wild West, before organizations were multi-million dollar corporations run with the efficiency of a well-oiled machine they had to work out the kinks. The kinks of professional basketball were especially rough. At first, basketball appeared to thrive only in the smaller cities that did not field a football or baseball team. The arenas were an adventure, as early games were often played in hockey arenas, with wooden planks laid over the ice. The courts would perspire, and resulting in anything from a layer of slippery dampness to a certifiable Olympic pool. 
Then there were the fans. Blue Collar is putting it kindly. Crowds were full of grifters, drinkers, and other rabble-rousers. Many claimed to be gamblers first and sports fans second. There were often louder cheers when a basket covered the point spread than when a basket won a game. Bookies lingered under the stands at halftime, happy to allow spectators to double up on the action. A thick haze of cigar smoke often permeated through the upper decks, clouding the view. These fans had a reputation of being unruly, to put that kindly as well. Quote, Arenas had nicknames such as the Tub of Blood. Fans shook the basket when the players were shooting. The ladies stuck their hairpins into the legs of players and smacked them with their handbags. And miners heated pennies with their lamps before hurling them at the losers. End quote. Amongst these coliseums of mayhem, Syracuse stood out. Quote, the Syracuse fans hurled candy bars, cups of soda, programs, and popcorn boxes down on the court and poured beer and spat on the visiting players as they walked along the ramp into the locker room beneath the stands." End quote. A young Bob Cousy learned quickly to duck when he sauntered up that ramp. There was an infamous Syracuse fan known as a strangler. Any player's neck that came into his grasp wasn't safe. He would try to choke anyone that walked past him. He once got a hold of the owner from the Philadelphia franchise, who in retaliation threatened to put a hit out on him by his associates back in Philadelphia. Referees were no safer than players. Some would have to flee town after the games, as unruly mobs were known to wait outside the locker room, hoping to deliver a beating. There's a story of one ref that got changed into his street clothes at halftime and vanished in order to escape the rough justice of the angry mob. Arenas were weary to restrain their fans, as they were desperate for gate tickets and were afraid to discourage attendance in any way. As we mentioned, most games were played in hockey arenas, so basketball often shared a fan base with the local hockey team. These fans were accustomed to blood. A game wasn't a real game unless there was at least one good fight. The players often obliged them. Early rules of basketball hadn't quite figured out how to properly space the floor to the current flowing and balletic style seen today. Instead, brute men jockeyed for rebounds and positions around the basket. The game's first star was George Mikan, a lumbering monster from the Midwest who wore steel-rimmed glasses. His patented low post game included forearm thrusts into his opponent's face. Teams would stall on offense, dribbling out the clock without shooting. Games would end with the score in the teens, leaving fans flustered and vowing never to return. Eventually, the owners figured out the rules, expanding the lane and adding a 24-second shot clock. The pace exploded, and teams consistently scored in the triple digits. Despite the improved gameplay, attendance still sputtered, and owners were hanging on by the skins of their teeth. Pennies were pinched wherever possible. When Auerbach took the coaching job, he discovered that one of the Celtics players was also the halftime entertainment. Massachusetts' own Tony Lavelli would wow fans with his hook shots in the first half and then entertain them with an accordion concert at halftime. Red being red had no interest in this buffoonery, and Lavelli was soon traded. The only true method of building serviceable attendance was to build a championship team. He needed that center, or the Celtics might fold. 
The keystone to the Celtic dynasty would come from Oakland, California. After all, as Auerbach believed, all the real rebounders came from out west. For a giant, Bill Russell managed to remain inconspicuous for much of his youth. Basketball did not come naturally to him. He was thin and raw, but his early coaches were able to see potential and managed to convince him to stick with it, despite being the worst player on his junior varsity team. Russell often questioned his coach's faith, telling him the other players were much better than he was. His coach told him, quote, If you think people are better than you, they always will be. End quote. That stuck with Russell forever. He kept practicing, kept learning, and luckily for him and his coaches, he kept growing. This is yet another example of how it is absolutely impossible to underestimate the importance of teachers, coaches, and mentors. Born in Louisiana, Russell was too young to fully grasp the dangerous and oppressive atmosphere of his childhood home, but his father did and was able to move the family to Oakland, California. Only when Russell returned to the South as an adult did he fully comprehend its horrendous views on race. As he came of age in Oakland, he did come to understand his place in society, taking cues from the subtle and not-so-subtle treatment of his family. He remembered his brother being arrested for setting up a shoeshine station to make a little extra money one summer. Despite plenty of other local kids doing the same thing, Russell's brother was singled out. He remembered his mother being harassed for dressing like a white woman. A supposed friend of his father once called him the worst word Russell had ever heard. A common adage states that ignorance is bliss. Well, Russell was anything but ignorant. His brilliance, fed by his ability to absorb information and learn from observation, a brilliance that allowed him to excel at basketball, also forced him to internalize and process all of the difficulties of living in America as an African American. He fully comprehended every demeaning gesture and noticed each and every way he was not looked at with equal standing among his peers. He noticed that even when people were seemingly pleasant and fair, there were limits to their kindness. If ignorance is bliss, full comprehension can be hell. The same coach that taught Russell the key to self-confidence also gave him the most honest explanation of race he had ever received. As Russell's high school team was predominantly black in a predominantly white league with predominantly white refs, the coach laid it out to his young players. Quote, The second there's trouble, everyone is going to blame you. Whether it's your fault or not, you'll be guilty. The slightest trouble and everyone will claim it was a riot. Remember that. We've got an extra burden here, but we can carry it. End quote. And Russell could carry it. He slowly ascended the ranks of his school team, becoming a competent, though unimpressive player. He watched his teammates. He talked to them about what they did and how they did it. He observed his opponents. He broke their moves down in his mind to emulate them. He learned that defense fit best with his natural skill set. It played to his strengths, and he loved the chess match of anticipating moves and countering them. In his final high school game, he scored a career-high 14 points. 
It wasn't much, but it was enough. Enough to impress a college scout. The coaching staff and USF approached him. Even though Russell had never heard of USF, many people in the Bay Area hadn't. He was, quote, so excited he almost started trembling. He was about to graduate, and he did not receive even a letter of interest, much less an actual offer from a single school, end quote. USF had a minuscule athletic budget and didn't have a gym to call their own. Known as the Homeless Dons, they rented out local gyms for home games. The head coach had an unimpressive record and was loathed by the alumni. But this was the perfect place for Russell. The coach's playing style was perfectly suited for Russell's game, and his opinions on race were much more progressive than his peers. Integration was still a problem for basketball long after the color barrier was broken. While most teams were integrated, they weren't fully integrated. There was an unspoken rule for the number of black players coaches could play. None would admit it, but its existence could be observed on the court. It went something like this. Play one at home, two on the road, three if you really needed to win. Russell would have to deal with this in the NBA long after his college career, but USF didn't care about the quota. They had three black starters and three reserves in the regular rotation. Russell's teammates all shared similar backgrounds as well. Local boys at the major colleges wouldn't even sniff. Russell kept learning, and he kept growing. Six foot five upon stepping onto campus, he shot up to six nine when he stepped on the court his sophomore year. He kept learning as well, focusing on his footwork. He learned how to block shots with uncommon regularity. Not only would he devour the attempts of the opposing center, but his nimble and light feet learned to float over to protect the basket when his teammates were beaten on defense. Soon, the homeless Dons did not know how to lose. Russell destroyed all American centers with regularity, and the Dons racked up season-long winning streaks. Unable to comprehend that a tiny school full of no-names from the West could hold up to the real blue bloods of college basketball, Newspaper reporters continued to write them off. But Russell kept scoring. He kept ripping down rebounds and kept demoralizing his opponents by blocking every shot in sight. Most importantly, the Dons kept winning. The 1955 National Championship found its home with the homeless Dons. The following season, the Dons didn't lose a single game and in attendance during their epic run was none other than Boston's own Red Auerbach wide-eyed and drooling over the future of his Celtics with Russell in green and white. The difficulty Auerbach faced was drafting Russell before anyone else could. The Celtics were already one of the league's better teams, meaning they would pick later in the draft. Russell wasn't exactly an unknown commodity anymore, shattering college records and winning back-to-back -back national championships. Auerbach managed to trade for the second pick in the draft though it cost him two of his better players, future Hall of Famers, in fact. This was a king's ransom for an unproven college player, no matter how good he looked. And Russell, despite his success, was not even close to a sure thing. His offense left much to be desired, and many scouts questioned whether his dominance would translate into the pros, where opponents were regularly just as big and often tougher than he was. 
After watching Russell play or checking the box score, people would needle red about his prized target. He'd only six points, they would lament. Yeah, but the guy he was covering had two, Red would fire back. With the second pick secured, the Celtics just needed to make sure Russell wasn't selected with the first pick. That pick belonged to the Rochester Royals. Though the Royals did not appear to be interested in selecting Russell, Auerbach added some insurance. This story is still debated, but it's why I absolutely love reading about the early years of professional sports. The amateurism is stunning. Deals were made over beers and handshakes, and random unrelated items were thrown in to sweeten the deals. So what guaranteed Russell would land in Boston? The ice capades. That's right, the ice capades. Celtics owner Walter Brown owned the Skating Song and Dance Act, which was a moneymaker wherever it went. Legend has it that Brown called the Rochester owner and promised them a week of ice capades if they passed on Russell. The greatest player in the history of basketball was effectively traded for a frozen carnival. Incredible. Probably false. Most serious historians will tell you it is, but we can pretend. Russell arrived in Boston with mixed feelings. It was not his ideal choice of destination, but he was glad to be in a northern city. The coach seemed to like him, and the owner seemed like a decent man. He was also paid handsomely, and his debut was met with a buzz of anticipation. The Boston Garden was packed for Russell's first game, with fans clamoring to catch a glimpse of the potential franchise star in the making. But reality soon set in. Russell, still a young man, a fresh-faced rookie, found himself alone in a strange and scary world. It was a harsh dose of reality. As we mentioned, the Celtics' other star, Bob Cousy, was embraced by his fan base because he looked like them. Same height, same build, they could identify with him, and that familiarity resulted in affection. Guards are comfortable in their own skin and can blend in with the crowd. Alternatively, centers stick out. They're on their own island. Russell could hide from no one in his new city. Not only was he black, not only was he successful and rich, but he was six foot ten. He quickly caught on to the racial undertones of Boston. He poured himself into his career, his teammates, and his coaching staff. But basketball didn't come easily for him, nor did life outside of basketball in Boston. The taunts of the opposing crowds were fierce and hurt Russell on a personal level. Why a person would say such vile, hateful, and racist things to another human being was difficult for Russell to grapple with. The physical beatings he took on the court were fierce as well. These were not racially motivated. In fact, Russell says he never received any kind of hatred from a fellow player. Instead, they were based on fear and competition. Established players were threatened by Russell's potential and desperate to gain an edge on him. Elbows to the ribs, forearms to the face, constant grabbing and clawing, hard fouls, tripping, anything to test Russell's resolve. His teammates and coaches urged him to fight back and stand up for himself. But Russell didn't want to fight anyone. It was against his principles and his concept of the spirit of competition. But enough was enough. In an early game against the Knicks, Russell had had enough harassment from the opposing center. He shoved back, and when the Knicks big man reached back to deliver a hook, Russell knocked him out in one punch. 
Red Auerbach cheered from the sideline. No one messed with Russell again. Throughout that first season, Russell began to mesh with his teammates, and the result was pure magic. Knowing Russell could protect the rim on his own, the perimeter players could crowd the shooters. When they inevitably drove the ball, Russell would clean the glass and outlet to Kuzi. The Houdini of the hardwood would then lead the fast break, where his brilliance was on full display, finding shooters with pinpoint passing or feeding the blazing Russell as he sprinted from rim to rim. Russell learned the strengths and weaknesses of his teammates. He found subtle ways to make everyone better. From game to game, he altered his focus to what they needed him to be. They surged through the playoffs to meet the St. Louis Hawks in the NBA Finals. St. Louis was, quote, a brawling city of breweries and German and Slavic immigrants. It was a site of one of the country's most notorious race riots, the East St. Louis Massacre of 1917, and racial tensions remained high, end quote. Russell was the focus of the crowd's vitriol, though Red Auerbach's personal feud with the entire city drew similar derision. A local sports writer noted, quote, The hatred between Red Auerbach and St. Louis is a beautiful thing, deep, lasting, and built on moral disgust, end quote. Prior to Game 3, Red got into an altercation with the St. Louis coach and decked him in the face, cracking a few teeth and bloodying his lip. While Red felt it was well worth the $300 fine, it didn't help the Celtics on the court. The teams traded wins and seesawed to a deciding Game 7 in the Boston Garden. One game to decide an NBA championship. Russell, fully comprehending the gravity of the situation, was sick to his stomach and vomited before the game in the locker room. This was not unusual, as Russell typically felt nervous prior to game time. This occurred so often, in fact, the other Celtics believed Russell losing his lunch was a sign of good luck. However, being Game 7 of the NBA Finals, with the added intensity came the added strain on Russell's nerves. Quote, Russell had already vomited once when it came time for the Celtics to take the floor, but he still felt so nauseated that he told Auerbach that he didn't think he could play, and the team left the dressing room without him. Russell sat alone for a few seconds, and then, realizing that regardless of how he felt, he would never be forgiven and would never forgive himself if he missed even a part of what might turn out to be his first championship, he hurried after them." End quote. What followed is often referred to as one of the greatest games ever played. Fast-paced and intense, not only did the players have the financial incentive of final bonuses on the line, both franchises were teetering on insolvency and desperate for a championship. St. Louis's all-star center Bob Pettit was on fire, drilling jumper after jumper. Russell, playing brilliantly himself, was nonetheless frustrated with his inability to contain him. Auerbach listened to his frustrations, but rebuffed him by telling him to shut up. Luckily, the Celtics' own Tommy Heinsohn, a tough, chain-smoking forward from Boston's own Holy Cross, was on fire as well. His line-drive jumper, perfected in a low-ceiling gym in Jersey City, New Jersey, was on full display, ripping through the net with ease and frequency. As the game wound down, Russell tied it with a layup. 
but St. Louis quickly inbounded and caught the Celtics off guard. Charging to the rim for the winning basket as time expired, it looked like St. Louis's Jack Coleman had a clean layup. Quote, But just as the ball left Coleman's fingertips, a giant, white-shirted blur engulfed him from behind. The blur swiped at the ball as it left Coleman's hand and connected clearly, slamming it against the backboard and back into play, where a Boston player scooped it up. Somehow, despite overwhelming odds in Coleman's favor, some force of divine providence had intervened to keep the Celtics alive." End quote. That force of divine providence was Bill Russell. One of Russell's opponents wrote a poem about him, citing that many of NBA layups were missed because the players feared the eagle with a beard was swooping down on them. On that particular play, teammates described Russell whizzing by them like they were standing still. Quote, it was like a state trooper going after someone, end quote. Russell had a knack for rising to another level when needed, and at this moment he unleashed his inner beast, saving the Celtics and forcing overtime. The extra period, and subsequent second extra period, was a war of attrition. Both sides were exhausted, and players were fouling out, leaving fewer and fewer reserves available on the bench. Throughout the two overtimes, Russell grabbed every rebound in sight, and the Celtics clung to a one-point lead with a mere second remaining. The St. Louis coach, now forced to check into the game, there were player coaches back then, had a crazy idea to throw the inbounds pass all the way from the baseline off the backboard 94 feet away. The idea was that the Celtics would be confused, and St. Louis would be ready for the ricochet and the putback to win the game. Quote, Standing under Boston's backboard, Hannum reared back and hurled the ball in a line drive to the far end of the court. Auerbach, watching from the sidelines, realized what Hannon was trying to do and thought impossible. To everyone's surprise, Hannum's included, he actually hit the backboard, but he had thrown the ball so hard it ricocheted off with too much force, and Pettit did not have complete control over it when he batted it up toward the basket. Still, the ball hit the rim and rolled around and around before, just as the clock ran down, it finally fell out." End quote. Pandemonium resulted in the Boston Garden. Fans rushed to court to congratulate the athletes. Players hugged each other in exhausted elation. Red Auerbach fired up his patented victory cigar. The players picked him up and threw him in the shower fully clothed. Russell. Exhausted and depleted, soaked it all in. Quote, in 13 months, he had won an NCAA championship, an Olympic gold medal, and now an NBA title. For a man who, four years earlier, had graduated from high school and applied for a job as a sheet metal worker because he had no other prospects, nothing would ever compare to such moments of pure, unadulterated triumph. When the game was finally over, he stood there alone the winner." End quote. Russell had laid the foundation for the greatest dynasty in the most celebrated franchise in all of basketball. After that first brick was laid, he added others. A mountain of hardware filled the trophy cases, and banners soon covered the rafters of the Boston Garden. Eleven championships in the next 13 seasons. Across town, the castle of Causeway Street, the Boston Garden. It's too small, 
too hot and sold out. You practically have to inherit a season ticket to get one. No arena in America has seen more historic moments in professional basketball than the Boston Garden. The championship banners of the Boston Celtics cover its rafters. And with Celtic great Larry Bird, the winning tradition continues on the famous parquet floor. Boston was a proud city and cherished their sports. Surely Bill Russell would be treated like a king, a god even. But instead of owning the town, he often felt like a prisoner. He had to constantly look over his shoulder. He was a soldier in a war forced upon him, and it was a war some closest to him failed to even acknowledge. Russell wrote in his autobiography that despite the success on the court, he was still fighting. Part of the fighting began when he moved into his new home in Boston. With his new NBA salary, he selected the neighborhood of Reading. It was the nicest area in Boston, with the best schools, best police protection, and nicest houses. It was also almost entirely white. He was harassed by the police. His neighbors were cold to him. His house was broken into several times. The worst of it was one instance when vandals destroyed his home and did unimaginable damage to the interior. Russell's daughter recalls racist slurs spray-painted on the walls and several rooms left in shambles. Quote, The burglars had poured beer on the pool table and ripped up the felt. They had broken into my father's trophy case and smashed most of the trophies. I was petrified and shocked at the mess. Everyone was very upset. The police came, and after a while they left. It was then my parents pulled back their bed covers to discover that the burglars had defecated in their bed. End quote. The psychological damage from this incident would last longer than any of the physical damage. How could you ever call a neighborhood that would do this to you your home? or the people that did this to you, your neighbors. Russell did not overlook this dynamic that existed in the city of Boston. Even when a white fan would come up to him and offer his praise, Russell wondered if the same pleasantries would be given to him were he not a famous basketball player. While being an honest, introspective, and thoughtful person, Russell was outspoken when it came to racial issues afflicting the country. He wrote op-eds for local newspapers. He marched with Dr. King in Washington in 1963. He defended Muhammad Ali when he refused to serve in Vietnam. He led the first integrated basketball camps in Jackson, Mississippi, after civil rights leader Medgar Evers was killed. Partly due to fear of what he represented, partly due to good old-fashioned racism, the city of Boston did not embrace Russell the way they should have. The most telling example was game attendance. The Celtics rarely played to a capacity crowd, despite reeling off win after win. The Bruins, on the other hand, played to a sold-out crowd nightly, despite being in the basement of the NHL standings. Maybe Boston was just a hockey town. Maybe not. Russell didn't believe that. He did not hide his reciprocated feelings to the lukewarm reception he felt. Sports writers found him aloof and entitled. The jovial attitude and bellowing laugh around his teammates turned into silence and icy glares around the media. One local writer considered Russell, quote, the most selfish, surly, and uncooperative athlete he'd ever met, end quote. He didn't sign autographs, not comprehending their importance, instead believing a handshake to be more valuable. He would routinely be voted MVP by the players, but not the sports writers. 
One teammate described his public persona as, quote, a kingly arrogance, end quote. What made the white citizens of Boston even more uncomfortable was his defense of the nation of Islam. Quote, he championed the sect's emphasis on education and economic empowerment. Though he rejected the doctrine, such as labeling the white man a devil, he drew from the nation of Islam's message of black pride, end quote. Needless to say, the black power movement scared the hell out of white America. While his relationship with the city of Boston remained distant, his relationship with his teammates thrived. Season after season ended with champagne parties, the tradition of throwing Red Arbuck into the shower, and the hoisting of another banner to the rafters. Civil rights milestones were reached on the court as well. In 1964, the Celtics fielded the first starting five to consist entirely of black players. In 1966, Red Arbuck retired and Bill Russell became the first black head coach in NBA history. Amazingly, even when pulling double duty as a star player and the coach, he continued to win. The Celtics were champions 11 times in 13 seasons, yet attendance was rarely at capacity in the Boston Garden. Why was Russell so angry, so standoffish? Many fans and sports media members pondered such questions. How could he take issue with a country that made him rich? He was a star athlete. He should appreciate Boston. It's not like the South. When he went to other cities, he was refused access to hotels and restaurants. He boycotted several games because of this, choosing to forfeit money and fly back to Boston. In one instance, on a visit to Marion, Indiana, Russell was given the key to the city, only to be refused entry to a restaurant later that night. Russell was right to throw the key right back in the mayor's face. Boston wasn't racist. The South was. The Midwest was. If this was actually true, then why, when Russell tried to move to a new neighborhood after the vandalism incidents, did neighbors draft a petition to block him? Just because there weren't signs on the bathrooms or water fountains indicating which race could use them, didn't mean that there weren't other methods of segregation. Russell's experience soured to the point where he later said, quote, Boston itself was a flea market of racism. It had all varieties, old and new. The city had corrupt, city hall crony racists, brick-throwing, send-them-back-to-Africa racists, and in the university areas, phony radical chic racists. Other than that, I liked the city, end quote. Throughout his time in Boston, Russell tried his best to improve the climate. He tried to bring light to the de facto school segregation problem by participating in a one-day boycott. In the mid-1960s, a city advisory committee released a report detailing the racial imbalance in Boston schools. 16 schools were over 96% black, and they received the least amount of funding. Russell toured churches and social centers led workshops and sing-alongs to bring the issue to light. In 1966, he told of the, quote, poisoned atmosphere that hangs over this city. It is an atmosphere of hatred, mistrust, and ignorance, end quote. He spoke up about the silent but agreed-upon quota of black players in the NBA that was prevalent throughout the 60s. A number of the players had to be white, he believed, to keep the fan base. I don't know. They asked me questions like, could I coach without being prejudiced? for the white players. And all the years I've been playing, no one ever asked any coaches that I played for if they could coach that I've been president of black players. In fact, it never even come up. And this is uh, 
we'll find out in the colleges all over the country that this is the case in a lot of cases that uh, coaches are prejudiced against the black players. But when I uh, took the job, it's, this is the first time I think it was raised where the coach could coach objectively. But uh, really, since I'm such an egotist, that's what I call it, that, uh, it didn't bother me because I didn't care what they thought, really. His outspokenness was not exactly celebrated in the press. The year he wrote an editorial regarding this quota, he was not named league MVP, despite a career high in rebounds and assists. One Boston sports writer mourned, quote, I felt betrayed by a man I had admired openly, typographically, from the day of his first Celtics press conference, for what I suspected was his enormous dignity, intelligence, and manly qualities, end quote. Though hurt by these slights, Russell did not change his tune. Quote, we have got to make the white population uncomfortable and keep it uncomfortable because that is the only way to get their attention, he wrote in the Sunday Evening Post. Russell was frustrated with the undertones of public sentiment when it came to race relations. He felt that the election of Ronald Reagan as governor in California and his constant railing against welfare and other safety nets was an ominous sign. Locally, Boston was rallying behind that sentiment in the most northern fox of ways. Russell supported the idea of busing students to different schools in order to integrate the city. City leaders like Luis Day Hicks led the fight against integration, but used coded terms to disguise the bigotry and racism. Even her campaign slogan was a cryptic, hateful message. You know where I stand, her campaign billboards exclaimed. Her entire campaign for mayor was based on an anti-busing rally cry supported by the communities of South Boston and Charlestown, communities full of your standard Celtics fans. Her mayoral campaign was alarming to many, and she even spat with Martin Luther King Jr. when he warned that her election would be a tragedy. She responded, quote, Dr. Martin Luther King is the real tragedy of our times, end quote. Many of the Negro parents believe that a predominantly Negro school is inferior per se, but we in here in Boston do not believe that premise. Despite the difficulties of living as a black man in Boston, the Celtics games only seemed to get more enticing. Wilt Chamberlain entered the NBA. He was an absolute Goliath that shattered records and put up stat lines that looked like misprints. Not only was he seven feet tall, but he was also strong, fast, athletic, and smart. But his repertoire didn't stop with physical gifts. He was highly skilled, with a patented fadeaway jump shot to complement the graceful balance and footwork. He played with an intensity few had ever seen, and his mind was as sharp as a tack. Upon stepping into the national spotlight in high school, nonetheless, a national news headline questioned, Can basketball survive Chamberlain? His arrival supposedly signaled the end of Russell's dominance. Furthermore, Bob Cousy, the Houdini of the hardwood and pride of the Celtics, retired in 1963. Boston's championship streak ended in 1967 at eight in a row. The public narrative was that Russell was in over his head, trying to be the coach and play for the Celtics. That's why they lost in the first season Red left the sidelines. The press was ready to bury the fading Celtics and crown a new NBA dynasty. Only it never happened. Boston came storming back in 1968 and 1969, bringing Russell's total to 11 championships in 13 years. I'll keep saying that number. The 1969 season, Russell's last, quote, 
lent a lyrica coda to the mythology of Russell as the ultimate winner, end quote. The Celtics were old. The Lakers were stacked. Injuries littered the creaky Celtics throughout the season, leading to a lackluster record. But they gutted through the playoffs, running on the fumes of greatness and moving forward with gut and guile. The loaded Lakers featured Elgin Baylor, Jerry West, and the newly acquired Wilt Chamberlain. The Celtics dragged the Lakers to a full seven games. With a deciding game held in Los Angeles, the Lakers owners prepared for a celebration. A marching band, champagne on ice, and most ominously, an ocean of balloons loaded up on the ceiling was ready to rain down from the rafters. But Russell reached back one more time and did what he always did. Just enough to win. Chris, I'm here with Bill Russell. Bill, this must have been a great win for you. Exactly. One more I know it's hard to say what's in your mind right now, Bill, and it must have been a great win. Well, this is such a, a great bunch of guys, you know, uh, and it's, been, it's just been so, so fabulous the way they played for me, and it sounds all corny, you know, you know, start talking like that, but I told these guys before the game, I don't care what happens, I wouldn't trade you guys for any guys in the world. And, uh, that was fairly obvious, but the uh, leadership has to come from you, Bill, and to bring a team from fourth place during the regular season to the world's title, the 11th title in 13 years, you've got the respect of everybody in the country. Well, Jack, it's, it's my guys. I, I, it's just my guys. These, these guys play ball for me, and like, they're such a great bunch of guys. It, it, I just can't say enough about the guys. Let me get John Havlicek. John. And that was it. Russell hung up his sneakers and left the game. He wrote his own retirement article. Quote, Since 1943, when I first saw basketball, I've played approximately 3,000 games, organized and otherwise. I think that's enough. End quote. A small retirement ceremony was held to retire his jersey. This was done well before fans were allowed into the arena. When they asked why the ceremony was executed privately, Russell exclaimed, quote, you know I don't go for that stuff, end quote. He felt he had done all he needed to do. He was done with playing. He was done with coaching. He was done with Boston. Quote, I played for the Celtics, period. I did not play for Boston. I was able to separate the Celtics institution from the city and the fans, end quote. He moved back west and put Boston in his rearview mirror, and that's where it stayed for over 40 years. Refusing to acknowledge a problem is never a solution. While Russell collected championships for his Boston team, the country witnessed a tumultuous period of change and violence. Freedom fighters marched from Selma to Montgomery. The war in Vietnam escalated. Cities rioted. Civil rights leaders from MLK to Malcolm X to Medgar Evers were gunned down in cold blood. Two of Massachusetts's own prodigal sons, John Kennedy and his brother Bobby, were gunned down in similar fashion. Tommy Smith and John Carlos held their gloved fists in the air on the Olympic medal stand, enlightening the world to the plight of the Black Power movement. While all of this happened, the cries of the disenfranchised in Boston continued to fall on deaf ears. Peaceful protests and demonstrations were met with little results. The de facto segregation and mistreatment of its own citizens was covered up. But the reckoning always comes. Not immediately. But years later, the reckoning came. 
We are only hopeful that there were eager ears listening to the plight of Boston, and as we say today, that we're just hopeful that he will go ahead with the plan, which I feel will then help in the process of bringing back the people to Boston and sanity to our great city. They have never given up on reimposing segregation. In fact, uh, when Louise Day Hicks talks about restoring racial peace to Boston and brotherhood, she wouldn't know what brotherhood means. For Boston, it came in 1974. Lawsuits filed by the NAACP and lower court rulings addressing the school segregation problem battled up the chain of higher offices, eventually landing in the hands of the Supreme Court. In Morgan v. Hennigan, the court ruled that racial segregation permeated schools in all areas of the city, all grade levels, and all types of schools. The court agreed with the NAACP's brief that the school committee had systematically disadvantaged black school children. Previous court rulings in this instance stated that busing students to different schools was an appropriate action needed to be completed with deliberate speed. The well-established and visible borders of Boston's neighborhoods were about to be dismantled with a proverbial axe. The Irish-American neighborhoods of Hyde Park, Charlestown, and South Boston, the Italian North End, and the black neighborhoods of Roxbury and South End were forcefully merged together through the busing of students from one neighborhood to another. Forced to address their problems and inequalities, Boston wilted into chaos and violence. Just because I'm white doesn't mean that the 14th Amendment doesn't, doesn't be part of me either. I am white and I want my rights. When black students were bused to South Boston, they had rocks thrown at their faces. Assaulted parties then retaliated. A white student was stabbed by a black student, causing parents to barricade the school preventing the exit of black teenagers trapped inside. These events were followed by boycotts and the refusal of school committees to follow the court orders. White student attendance in particular plummeted. Police and even National Guard presence were required in the hallways and outside schoolyards. What do you think is gonna happen when you go to school? When we go up there, we're gonna be stoned. It's not fair to me, because why is the other way around when they come up here? When they come up here, we won't mess with them, so why when we come up there, they mess with us? What do you think about the people of South Boston, Joanne? If you were the message you'd like to tell them, what would it be? I don't think it's fair. It's not fair to me. The cost of enforcement and protection by the city would soon bleed the budget dry. Boston still tried to hide behind the disguise of being anti-racist. Like they had for decades, white parents and politicians framed their resistance to school desegregation in terms like busing and neighborhood schools, and this rhetorical shift allowed them to support white schools and neighborhoods without explicitly using racist language. The Northern Fox remained at large, but in April of that year, no one could any longer deny that Boston had a problem with race. The world looked in horror at a singular image spread across newspapers throughout the country. On that morning in April, a Monday morning, a large crowd of students gathered to march to City Hall Plaza. Quote, they attended for every reason and for no reason at all. They despised forced busing. They hated blacks. They feared change. 
They followed their parents' lead. They welcomed days off from school. They wanted to hang with their friends. They felt like they were part of the group." End quote. They were Southie kids, and they wanted to show their Southie pride. One student, on his way out, grabbed his family's American flag. After all, they were only protecting their rights under the American Constitution. Quote, As the students filled out the chamber and headed outside, they passed a group of black students from a nearby magnet school going on a tour. End quote. Harsh words and food projectiles were exchanged. At that moment, a young African-American lawyer named Ted Landsmark was walking at a fast pace to catch a meeting he was late for in City Hall. Dressed in his favorite three-piece suit, he turned the corner and ran right into the marchers. Get him, the students shouted, using every racial slur they could summon. Quote, a few of the anti-busing protesters at the front jumped him. He was being kicked and punched. The young man carrying the flag was a few steps away from the scuffle. He circled around and began to swing the flag at Landmark." End quote. The brawl lasted less than a minute, and Landmark was left bleeding on the pavement, his nose busted and his glasses shattered. This was a rather timid event given the citywide unrest the busing policy had brought to the surface, but a local photographer was able to suspend the image in time. As Landsmark describes in his own account, quote, I was just out there walking to City Hall in my three-piece suit. I was anyone. And suddenly, someone tried to kill me with an American flag, end quote. The image captured is powerful, visceral, and horrifying. Quote, a well-dressed black man is being grabbed from behind. He seems to be struggling to free himself. A large crowd, composed mostly of high school students, looks on. The flag bearer's feet are planted, his hands firmly grasping the staff, his eyes focused on his target. His hair flows back as he prepares to lunge forward. Attacker and victim are forever frozen in time. We feel trapped beside them. We can glance away, but we can't escape the horror of what we imagine the next instant will bring." End quote. The photographer named his work The Soiling of Old Glory, and the picture went on to win a Pulitzer Prize. Quote, it shocked not just Boston, but America. Racial strife had not only not ended in the 1960s, it was alive and well in the cradle of liberty. End quote. The busing crisis continued in Boston for many years. The city seemed unable to reconcile what people had tried to warn them about decades ago. People like Bill Russell. It took years and years for the city to come to terms with its past. During the tumultuous times and the peaceful times, the Boston Celtics remained a dynasty and represented a source of pride to the city. Fans and media eventually came around to Russell's feelings. Eventually, his greatness was properly recognized and they wanted to celebrate with him. They wanted to be forgiven. But year after year, Russell had no interest in forgiveness. He had lived his life on his own terms, believing he owed the people of Boston nothing more. Russell's most famous teammate, Bob Cousy, the Coos, the Houdini of the hardwood, remained in Boston after retirement, and in his twilight years, he did what many people do, ponder their past. He had a good relationship with his teammates and nothing but fond memories of his time with the Celtics. But after all of the championships, all of the accolades, all of the fast breaks, all of the behind-the-back passes and no-look dishes to cutting teammates, 
Kuzi found himself lamenting the one assist he failed to make. It aided him. When asked about it, he had trouble maintaining his composure. I should have done more, Kuzi ruse. He's referring to his teammate Bill Russell. Quote, we could have done more to ease his pain and make him feel more comfortable. I should have been more sensitive to Russell's anguish in those days. End quote. At first glance, this seems out of character for Kuzi. He and Russell had maintained a solid relationship throughout their careers. Growing up with immigrant parents in the diverse environment of New York City, he did not harbor the racial inclinations common of the time period. In fact, he quickly developed a deep and lasting friendship with Chuck Cooper, the first black player drafted by the Celtics. Kuzi recalls the out-of-body experience he had upon his first face-to-face -face interaction with the Jim Crow laws of the South. He and Cooper were drinking beers together when they encountered a couple of restrooms labeled for blacks and whites. It shocked him. He immediately wondered how that image impacted Cooper, considering how jarring it was to him. In a quiet act of defiance, they walked together outside and urinated off the platform. So why would Kuzi harbor so much regret that it consumed him and moved him to tears? He didn't break into Russell's house and destroy his trophy case. He didn't taunt him with racial slurs, call him a black gorilla or a baboon like some fans did. He didn't force him to eat and sleep separately from the rest of the team. But Kuzi wonders how complicit he was in Russell's plight. Russell likely wouldn't have been allowed in Kuzi's country club for a round of golf. Kuzi hadn't considered it at the time. He never asked. When Russell was refused service at a southern restaurant and boycotted the game that night, flying home to Boston, Kuzi played. For the life of him, he couldn't even remember that event. When Dr. King marched on Washington, with Bill Russell in attendance, Kuzi wished he was there by his side. He wished he had connected with Russell early on and told him that he was there for him, that he understood what he was going through. He wished he had defended Russell in public. Instead, Kuzi felt like he was too absorbed with being Bob Kuzi. So he decided to make what he called his last pass. He wrote a letter to his old friend. In it, he confessed to all of these regrets. Quote, I was the man. I had the media in the palm of my hand. You know, looking back on it, I should have done more to share your pain. I'm sorry I didn't, end quote. When an interviewer asked Kuzi if he ever received the closure he was hoping for with Russell in the letter, he said he received the closure he wanted just by sending it. This was his confessional. The past was done with. There was nothing he could do to change it. Kuzi's struggle with the past and the weight of it on his conscience is a reflection of Boston as a whole. The city and the Celtics for years and years wanted nothing more than to welcome Russell back with open arms, to thank him for building the dynasty they loved, to let him know the swell of pride they felt every time they wore the green and white, and how it was all due to him, the greatest winner in sports history. They wanted to apologize on behalf of the entire city for the evil people that made him feel unwelcome. Is Russell at fault for not accepting their hand and welcoming the apologies? After all, to forgive is divine. But while wounds heal, scars always remain. Russell long ago made peace with this. He had moved on from the past. He had given Boston everything he believed they deserved. Why anything more? He didn't care what they thought of him back then. Why should he care now? Isn't forgiveness, in part, 
just giving people an outlet for their guilt. In a way, isn't it telling them it's okay what you did? Maybe, maybe not. But prominent people kept begging Russell to go back, allow Boston to make amends. The President of the United States gave him a Medal of Freedom in 2011. The President also pushed for a statue of Russell to be erected in Boston. And I hope that one day, in the streets of Boston, children will look up at a statue built not only to Bill Russell the player, but Bill Russell the man. Boston obliged. Russell's family begged him to go back for the unveiling. The statue was going up with or without him. Finally, Russell relented. He came back. The statue was unveiled in City Plaza, right near the very spot where the young man wielded an American flag as a weapon back in 1976. The statue features 11 green granite bases, representing, you guessed it, the 11 NBA championships Russell brought to Boston. Engraved in one of the bases is one of Russell's favorite statements, quote, there are no other people's children in the United States. There are only next generation Americans, end quote. While the image of the soiling of old glory will always be present, the statue of Boston's great hero will always be there, shining over it. I'm really quite flattered, and that uh, I hope that this is a manifestation of the fact that I tried to live a good life and tried to actually try to contribute to the society. The reason I conducted my life the way I did, it was almost like a family business. It's my family tradition to share our lives with our friends and neighbors. And that's the way I've tried to conduct my life. My father always said, uh, I don't know what you're gonna do when you grow up. But don't do it if you can't do it right. And so, be the best you can at whatever you do. If they're a parent, be kind to the children so that the children will grow up knowing what kindness feels like and they'll be more apt to continue in it. And uh, that is, to me, one of the great expressions of love for country, for family, country, and the world. There are a lot of sources for this episode. In regard to Bill Russell and the Celtics, check out The Last Pass by Gary Pomerantz. Or check out The Rivalry, Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, and the Golden Age of Basketball. That's by John Taylor. Bill Russell himself has two autobiographies, Go Up for Glory and Second Wind. Regarding the Boston busing crisis, a great book is called Common Ground by J. Anthony Lucas. Special thanks to Van Voorst Films for producing this podcast. Until next time.
Thank you for listening to WDNXM. This concludes tonight's broadcast from the Triangle in Hoboken, New Jersey. Portions of what you just heard were previously recorded and transcribed. On behalf of the entire staff, we wish you a good night. This is WDNXM signing off. And now, our national anthem.